You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hi, my name is Roxanne Varza, director at Station F, the world's largest startup campus located in Paris. We gather 1,000 startups and everything entrepreneurs need under one roof. And this is our very first podcast. We've been thinking a long time about what the name of the podcast should be. We came up with all kinds of weird names with entrepreneurship, innovation, a lot of words with F, like Station F. We even thought of Station Radio. Uh, but finally, we decided to keep it short and sweet. So this is Station F, the podcast. More seriously, the concept is that we will meet every two weeks on Friday to discuss the future of innovation and entrepreneurship, and obviously to meet great entrepreneurs. The idea behind this is to provide insights on the future and practical tips if you're launching a business or startup. To do this, we will meet great entrepreneurs from Station F and from the world's leading companies, investors, and also experts and researchers. Of course, this is a connected podcast, so feel free to ask us all your questions and give us feedback at any time using the hashtag StationFPodcast. So we are in back to school season for this first episode, and we thought it would be a great idea to have a discussion on education. In the past years, we've seen a lot of changes in schools, especially on what and how we learn. And all this seems pretty logical when you think that roughly 85% of jobs in 2030 have not even been thought of yet. So to discuss this and to talk about the future of education, we have with us two of our entrepreneurs. We have Aurélie from Uptail. Hello. Hi. Welcome. And we also have Chloe, founder and CEO of Ada Tech School. Hello, Chloe. Hi. Uh, we also have a very special guest with us for this first episode. So Hadi Partovi, who is the CEO and founder of Code.org. Hey, Hadi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and we're really excited to have you with us for this first episode. Uh, so just before we talk about education, we will start each episode with what we are calling a startup good news. So that is some practical advice from one of our entrepreneurs. Station F podcast, startup good news. I'm now with Bertrand Stéphane, the co-founder of Alcmeon from the LVMH program at Station F. Now, my understanding is that Alcmeon is an engagement solution for brands on social networks. Can you explain to us, Bertrand, just what Alcmeon is? Yes, sure. Thank you, Roxanne. Alcmeon is a solution for big businesses to better interact with uh, consumers in social media and messaging apps. Uh, why do we do this? Because today consumers want to uh, message with brands exactly the way they message with friends and families. So we developed Alcmeon as a tool for brands to better communicate, better interact on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, but also on Messenger, on WhatsApp, uh, even on iMessage, um, to facilitate uh, brands uh, answer fast and relevantly to consumers. So it means what? I get like text messages now from big companies? You do. Yeah, you do. For example, our client WeSNCF is able to answer, thanks to our solution, to answer your, to your questions, even to your um, uh, reservation requests on, on all, these, uh, on all these, these channels. Super. So I've actually heard different stories of how the company was born or actually you just told me that there's a real story a true one and, and a fake one um why don't you tell us hopefully the real story okay i'll tell you the real story the real st 
Well, actually, I'll tell you the, the full story first. The full story was that it was the idea was born in an airport with uh, my, myself and my co-founder uh, Matthew trying to uh, to contact an airline and and get a fast answer. And by the way, this is a great story because it's exactly what our tool does. However, this wasn't the real the original story. The original story was that um, my background is in online advertising. And I was trying to come up with ideas for uh, brands to be more uh, to be better perceived in uh, uh, online communities rather than just you know pure ads. So um, I thought that you know if brands started to answer relevantly and quickly to uh, to consumers' questions in online forums, that would be better for them and they would be it would be good. It would have, it would be good for their karma and good also for their sales in the future. And then um, you know obviously uh, social media came in. And so we thought, well, we can do this in forums. Why don't we do it in, fo in social media? And then with the rise of messaging, you know, the recent rise of messaging, um, you know, then again, we sort of changed. Uh, we, we had a, another switch to a new channel. And actually, messaging is a great channel for us because it accepts both automated answers, which we do through bots, and uh, human answers, which we also do through a console uh, made for customer advisors who can you know, provide the more difficult answers. Super. Well, I love that the real story and the fake story both kind of have this realization of the need. I love the fake story, though, because there's like a crazy airplane involved and things like that. Um, and so you at Alchemion just raised 2 million euros. So congratulations. That's our startup good news. Um, but what are the main challenges that you're currently facing as a company? Well, we raised this this money to grow our business and, and grow our business in Europe because today we have 25 large clients, but they're mostly in France. But we start having some clients in Italy and Spain, for example. And so um, the challenge is to um, uh, structure the company, structure our organization to be able to deliver this growth. Uh, that is, of course, hiring people and hiring international people in, in Italy, uh, Spain, Germany, which are three uh, markets, are three core markets aside of France, um, and 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 so that's that's a challenge because we need to structure the company, uh, you know, uh, train the new people, uh, and 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 we need to do that without losing on the quality of of, of the what we deliver to our clients, which is really important for us and why our clients are, are so. Uh, uh, loyal to us. Um, and, and so that's a challenge. Yeah, so definitely scaling is, is up next. It's scaling, exactly. Scaling, that's, yep. that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to end on, um, it's not really a tip, but it's more a learning or a mistake from fundraising that you want to share with our audience. What, what can you say about that? Well, um, you know, be patient is the tip because um, this, the well, a couple of things I, I really, I really uh, would recommend. First of all, uh, of course, it's important to explain your projects, your project really well. But I think it's really important, especially to exp ex uh, explain well why you're raising the money. What are you going to do with the money? In? Because you need the investor to be part of your story. To you need to involve your investor in the in the next, you know, in the next, uh, you know, three to five years. And, and so you need to explain your projects. Project really well. It, so, it sounds very uh, obvious, but it's it's not so easy to do. Um, and um, well, that would you know, that would be the main thing. Excellent. And you mentioned be patient. How long did it guys take? Yeah, to raise? and I and I, I mentioned be patient. Yeah, because it, it took us about a year uh, from you know from when we started, which was about uh, mid of last year, until when we concluded, which was basically in June of this year. And why did it take so long? Because we actually met a lot of investors. 
and and you know you need to find the right match you read you need you know it's not just money it's about you know this you know sharing the same philosophy the same goals for the company and it takes time you know some lucky people will will find uh, their their inv the right investor in in the first uh, three meetings and 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 some others uh, you know in the next 30 meetings and so that takes a lot of time perfect thank you so much my pleasure thank you station f podcast focus can you remember back when you were in school, whether it was five years ago or 20, a lot has changed, at least a lot has changed for me, particularly due to innovation and new technology. So I remember, well, I actually can't remember my first encounter with tech, but I can remember some crazy software we used to use in school to learn typing when I was like eight and I seriously doubt anyone uses it today. But today we're seeing a lot of new ways to learn and new topics to learn and we're really here to talk about what the future of education will look like. Uh, that's what we're going to try and understand today. So I'm here with Aurélie, who is the founder and CEO of Uptail, and Chloe, who is the founder and CEO of Adatech School, and obviously with Hadi Partovi, CEO and co-founder of Code.org. So thanks so much for joining us here in Paris. Now, Hadi, I'm going to start with you. Um, I remember that I first learned about Code.org with this crazy video, I think, a lot of people learned about Code.org this way, uh, featuring Drew Houston from Dropbox, Jack Dorsey from Twitter, a bunch of really high-profile people, maybe even Bill Gates. I can't remember everybody who was in that video. Um, and everyone was promoting learning to code. Um, it was the first time I had ever really seen a campaign like that and actually even considered the importance of learning to code. So tell me how code.org got started. I imagine, I mean, in my own mind, that you and Bill and Jack are all in this room having this chat, but it's probably not what happened in reality. Um, well, first of all, thank you for hosting me. And, and that video actually was the launch of code.org. So it wasn't, uh, there wasn't some organization that actually existed prior to that video. And uh, at that moment, code.org was literally just a hobby. It wasn't a plan to change the education system. It was a hobby to make a video. And uh, the launch of the video was also the end of the project. Uh, and I didn't expect to have a six-year-long and then continuing stretch to run a global nonprofit. Uh, the way the idea started actually was at around a fire pit with Jack Dorsey and Drew Houston uh, at a Allen and Company conference. And I was uh, in between things, and I'd basically done well enough as an investor that I was just taking some time off. And Jack asked me, what are you up to these days? And I was about to say, nothing. <laughs> uh, and it just felt wrong to say I'm up to nothing. It just felt like I'm a worthless person if I'm not doing anything anymore. And I had for years thought about creating a video to, to talk about the importance of learning computer science. So instead of just saying I'm up to nothing, I said, I'm up to this. You know, what do you think? And he said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll be part of it too. Uh, and I said, oh, cool. How about you, Drew? And Drew said he'd be part of it. Uh, and so that, basically that fire pit in that moment is when I decided I was going to make this video. And then that video turned into the project of creating code.org. Uh, and then the video reception was so incredible. Uh, not only 14 million people watched the video, uh, but much more importantly, 20,000 schools reached out saying, you know, we want this. Uh, and at the time, this was a volunteer team that had just disbanded because the project was over. Uh, so I was left with, uh, you know, an email list of 20,000 schools that wanted to teach computer science. And so the real project to, to, that is now today's code.org started at that moment to basically build a plan and hire a team to, to change global education to teach computer science in schools. The power of just saying, I'm not doing anything, that's insane. Um, but I think that was what, 2013, so now 
fast forward quite a few years since then. A lot has changed. People are talking about digital detox. People are scared of putting screens in classrooms. Um, what do you have to say? I mean, there are people who even say that we don't need to teach people to learn to code. So first of all, uh, even though our organization is called code.org, our message isn't that everybody should learn to code. It's that everybody should learn computer science or really that schools should teach computer science. Uh, and even how much computer science you, you learn is, is, I think, up to the student. But the idea that a school doesn't even offer a class in computer science is something that we should look at and think of as this outdated thing. Uh, there's so much talk about how to change education using technology, and people talk about different ways we can teach, but there's not enough discussion about what we teach and what are the topics that a student entering school today, graduating in 2030, should know as part of a sort of a well-rounded upbringing. And learning to code may not be important, but understanding how technology works, understanding how large problems can be broken down into their subparts, understanding the civic implications of all the technological changes around us, these are going to be fundamental to citizenship and preparedness for any career. Uh, and so it's important to teach as part of the school system. Now, you can teach many of these concepts without screens or without an abundance of screens. I personally am, I have young kids and I worry about how much screen time they get. Uh, but if a student is using a screen to learn or if they're using a screen to create, those aren't problematic. Kids aren't getting addicted to watching university lectures on, on the internet. The, thing, the problems with screen time are kids playing casual games or even aggressive games or social media. These things have been shown to be addictive. They've also been shown to either have neutral or, or more likely negative impacts on your emotional development. Those are the things that we should be limiting. But, but education on screens or creativity on screens, the more the merrier. Now, Chloe, you're the founder and CEO of the Ada Tech School. You're working on something quite similar, but you've chosen to focus on a specific population, women. Yeah. Why? So yeah, Ada is a tech college, is a tech college created for women, but open to all genders. Why we do that? Because uh, the gender diversity in tech actually um, is kind of a very uh, global no known problem. But just to put some figures on, on it, um, we only have 10% of uh, software engineer students uh, being female. And it has been pu published in the New York Times that the gender gap won't be breached in the, cen the century if we don't do something. So ADA basically is for me um, a way to act for this problem um, and to do something. So ADA is designed um, to debunk all gender bias uh, that has been uh, pretty heavy in tech. So it's about promoting a new culture. For me, it's for us at Ada is showing how how uh, as he was saying is how um, tech is creative. How tech um, is a social uh, it's a social tool towards other, uh, being a tool of communication with computer, but also with other developers. So it's a tool also turn um, is a, is a profoundly human tool. So by doing that, by promoting this new culture, by um, offering a caring community, by um, valuing diverse, um, diverse interests and diverse uh, skills, as soft skills as creativity, we want to uh, show another, promote another culture of tech and being a, um, a tech college where women feel comfortable of um, applying to. Great. And we know actually the future of innovation is not just about, or the future of innovation in education is not just about learning to code. Um, 
innovation has played a key role in history, in mathematics, in science. Um, we're seeing the rise of kind of new and interactive and immersive ways to learn. Uh, and that's mostly what you're doing already as the co-founder of Uptail. So uh, also as part of a Station F startup, you've created an immersive VR educational tool. So tell me, how does it work and who is currently using it? Uh, yes. Um, hi. So um, Uptail is uh, indeed addressing a upskilling and reskilling challenge uh, on a global scale uh, through uh, a way of learning that is very powerful. So we provide experiential learning, which means that we let people practice and feel the reality of, uh, of the field uh, thanks to virtual reality. So people can learn in safe and controlled environment, but feeling that they are directly on site. And this is what makes a technology like virtual reality so, uh, so powerful. So um, we use it for different types of skills. It can be manual technical skills, but also soft skills like uh, negotiation, pitching, public speaking. And um, the platform uh, lets you create your own uh, module in virtual reality and share it very easily. So at the moment, um, when we speak about uh, learning and ed tech, um, uh, we have to know that it, uh, it tackles uh, kids, kids learning, but also adult learning. So at the moment, we are mainly working with companies uh, for business model uh, um, challenges uh, as a start. Um, and also because companies have very strong um, upskilling and reskilling um, challenges. Uh, but we start to have more and more use in, uh, in schools, like for example, field trips. So you can uh, visit the pyramids and, uh, and see uh, how uh, Egyptians uh, have, uh, have built a civilization. Uh, but it's, uh, it can also be used to discover a new job. So for example, uh, jobs that are not very popular or are quite unknown by students can be discovered through a technology like virtual reality. Excellent. Now, I imagine all of you have looked outside of your respective countries and seen what's being done elsewhere in terms of uh, tech education, innovative education. I'm wondering which are the countries that seem to really be leading. And I'm going to start with uh, Hadi, because you guys also have this hour of code that I know has really kind of gained a mass worldwide following. Uh, which countries have embraced it the most and which countries are kind of innovating outside of that and really seem to be leading? Uh, sure. So first of all, we have about 40 million students on code.org and roughly a third of them are from outside of the United States. Uh, and the Hour of Code, which has been our, our annual campaign to, to have students in classrooms everywhere try one hour of computer science, that has from the get-go been broadly global. The, the countries that have the highest per capita usage of code.org and the greatest participation in the Hour of Code are very surprising. They are Italy, Turkey, uh, and Saudi Arabia, which are shocking those were not at all what we'd expected they also show the the benefit of translating our courses into different languages now uh, those countries the reason they're they're so uh so sort of uh saturated in their usage of code.org is because of local partners and local organizations in those countries that are basically uh, taking up the same charge as we have and and code.org's global expansion has been thanks to partners in many other countries from argentina or chile to thailand uh, or Israel that are basically taking the same cause of CS education and then using code.org's materials to, to expand on it. Now, at the government level, the countries that are doing the most for computer science are a different list of governments. So, for example, Japan and Argentina are two countries that are uh, leading the pack in terms of saying that every student in every school from primary education through secondary education should learn computer science as part of the curriculum. Uh, that's a change that I think is going to happen over the next two decades uh, across all the countries, but Japan and Argentina are even ahead of the United States when it comes to that. 
Chloe and Aurélie, this is a question that's much more for you. Um, obviously, a lot of people are interested by EdTech, but we actually don't see that many EdTech businesses. Um, why do you think that is? What are the big challenges that we have in the EdTech sector? Um, there, there are quite a few companies now uh, in EdTech in France uh, covering different um, uh, audience and different needs. Um, there are more and more lear adult learning B2B uh, solutions and the ecosystem is growing pretty fast. So we have new funds that uh, have been created like EduCapital. There are some also some um, clusters or hubs that are created around EdTech like EdTech France or uh, Learn, um, Learn Space. So the ecosystem is, is being um, more and more, let's, let's say, connected, though um, the investment in edtech is, is still uh, pretty, pretty low. Imagine that uh, in China, some companies uh, have, uh, have raised twice, only one company have raised twice the whole investment um, in, uh, in France. Uh, that, that all the edtech companies were able to raise. So um, I think it's uh, last year it was around two, uh, 200 million investment in edtech, um, mainly led by, uh, by some MOOCs uh, platform like Open Classroom. So the investments are, are still pretty low. And in China, it's, um, uh, it's 30,000 uh, 30, millions of, uh, of dollars that are invested in edtech. So it's growing. The ecosystem is becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, and some uh, edtech companies get recognized uh, uh, worldwide with uh, with prices, and uh, so it's it's it's, it's the beginning. I it's think. the beginning. Yeah. It's not all bad. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not all bad. <laughs> Chloe. Yeah, it's being said that edtech is um, uh, education now is a market, but access to fun. I totally agree with Oli. Is um, pretty pretty hard still. Uh, being said that um, edtech company has business cycle longer than other. A classical startup and so for friends it's less attractive um, being also that uh, it's often uh, heavier on uh, human uh, capital um, so yeah access to funding has still some challenges uh, challenges uh, up front but um, but yeah you, we, we can see a lot of uh, good things with edtech friends and things like that and is it possible to make money as an edtech business <laughs> Uh, that's, <laughs> a, that's a question. <laughs> we have a non-profit organization here. <laughs> um, I'd say that it's, it's something that everyone is asking as, as a school for us. Uh, we have a lot of people asking like your, 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 your tuition fees, like your, your, being, uh, your tuition fees are expensive and, um, and you are for profit. So I'd say that in France particularly, we have a mindset to change about uh, is education free or not um, and changing the mindset of we're actually selling a product. Um, I really believe that we, if we want to deliver <coughs> high quality education, uh, high quality uh, high quality education is a market and can be for profit also. But we can find um, interesting business model uh, in the US uh, with Lambda School, with Alberton School, Make School. They found some interesting thing: uh, the income share agreements. So the income share agreement is basically a portion of the uh, salary of the students. So the students pay his school after uh, having his diploma and after getting a job and paying his tuition fees as a portion of his salary. So this is a very interesting business model, which is still uh, forbidden in France. Uh, so we can hope that there's, there will be change for that because I believe that if we want to deliver education, we have to uh, allow this kind of business model, this like 
paying is business model, but free for the user uh, to be accepted here. Already, um, well, frankly, we make money with companies with the corporate uh, world. Um, we work also with schools and universities uh, in France and outside. We also work with Harvard, and but thing is that. We are more interested in the use of our technology here and the data that can come from it rather than uh, revenues because they are, they are too uh, too too low, uh, frankly. Especially in France where um, we work in silos, like you cannot uh, really gather with the uh, uh, dean of universities, schools and ministers and, and uh, learning and departments of companies. So it's a very different way to sell and it's really, really slow. So um, if you start and... We are especially bootstrapping everything, so we haven't raised money, so we need to invest what we earn. So we, we, we really focus on, at the moment, on, uh, on the selling our platform to companies. And Chloe mentioned this earlier, but we have a nonprofit in the room. <laughs> so Hadi, why is Code.org a nonprofit? So we're a nonprofit for a number of reasons, but the most important one is we wanted to service public schools in primary and secondary education. And you know, if I was answering your question about ed tech, what I would say is, uh, the, the most sort of profitable sectors of ed tech are everything outside of primary and secondary public education. So whether it's mm -hmm. after school, summer camp, online schools, post-secondary education, alternative education, these are all places where it's easier to get revenue because it's hard to get government funding. And effectively, when you're selling to the public education market, you're selling to the government, which is just not as easy. Uh, now, for us, the reason we want to be a nonprofit is because the schools that are most important for us to, to penetrate and to offer computer science in are the schools in the poorest neighborhoods, the schools with disadvantaged populations. Uh, it turns out that the schools that are least likely to teach computer science are also the ones that have uh, the lowest income families attending them. And those are the schools that would be hardest to sell something to if we were a for-profit and charging the school for it. So ultimately, we're trying to change global education. And if we if we were asking schools to pay for the price of that change, you'd see that the, you know, the, the schools that would be leading the pack would be the ones that are already leading the pack. And we're trying to uh, effectively balance opportunity. And that's if you're balancing opportunity, it's hard to make money at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now I'd like to move on with a piece of practical advice for other entrepreneurs, hopefully in the ed tech space specifically. Um, Chloe, I'm gonna start with you. Do you have some advice you'd like to share for other entrepreneurs? Um, I would say that the best you can offer is transparency and care because the education for the us is traditional ed education being a secondary school and higher education. Um, the, this part of education is lacking a lot of freshness and a lot of authenticity, I would say. And when you're new, you're not credible, uh, you don't have trust. So the best thing you can do is listen to your user and being super, super careful with them. Uh, because it's the best thing is the best thing you can do to have their trust and then to um, hire into the educate traditional education and hack this uh, this part of education. Super, Aurélie. Um, I would say that go for it. Go uh, go and create a company in the education uh, market um, sector because first of all, it's a great purpose. Education is one of the most uh, passionating uh, topic. Uh, now and in the in the future, there are many many uh, challenges. I think as a start, uh, maybe just focus on one uh, one skill or one uh, audience uh, and make make it bigger afterwards because there are so many so many uh, needs to uh, to address, and um, and take advantage of uh, all the great initiatives that are starting, all the uh, uh, 
uh, education events, uh, funds, and and um, community that is uh, that is uh, being built because it's happening everywhere, uh, especially in countries that where they have a, a high very uh, uh, high potential in terms of demographics, like uh, India or even in areas like uh, Africa. There are so many challenges, uh, but um, at the moment, no, not so much uh, companies that are being created. Great. And Hadi, obviously, I'm going to end with you. Uh, so you have an incredible background and story. I, I honestly wish we had more time. You grew up in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, you moved to the U.S. You taught yourself to code. You went on to study at Harvard. Uh, you built two companies that have been acquired by Microsoft and News Corp. You're an early advisor and investor in Facebook, Dropbox, Airbnb, and Uber. Uh, and now everything you're doing with code.org, I mean, really, it's huge. So I'm wondering... After having done all of that, <laughs> what are you looking at next? Uh, what gets you excited? What are the technology startups topics that, that you feel are coming up in the future? Um, well, for my career, what's next is still code.org. <laughs> uh, our job is far, far, far from done. Uh, even in the U.S., the job is far from done. But when you take a global perspective, teaching computer science in schools is what's next for me. Uh, now, in terms of what I think of in terms of technologies or, or other companies, I still continue to invest in, in startups. Uh, and, you know, my, my nonprofit work doesn't earn me a salary. And the way I, I pay for my life is continuing as an angel investor. Uh, among the startups I've, I've invested in, the one that I'm personally most excited about is a company called Convoy, which is uh, in the trucking and freight business. And I think this is a fascinating space, not only in the United States, which is where Convoy is based, but also globally. Trucking and freight is such a large percentage of the the global GDP, uh, and in in a very similar way to the taxi business before Uber came around, trucking is really run on antiquated technology. But unlike the taxi business, it's it's way larger as a business. Trucking is about five percent of global GDP, and a huge amount of it is complete waste. It's basically waste from middlemen. It's people using phone calls and fax machines instead of to plan truck routes instead of using a computer. Uh, so that's a startup that I'm very interested in. And I think it's just actually a general space that I think there's going to be hundreds of successful startups in the freight business uh, following the footsteps of, you know, looking at what's happened in, in sort of regular transportation. And I also think trucking is where self-driving is going to have the greatest uh, impact far before we see our, you know, Paris's streets aren't going to be crawling with self-driving cars nearly as soon as the highways and the freeways are going to be having self-driving trucks. Uh, the other area of technology I'm personally very interested in, and I think uh, it's a little bit overstated already, is machine learning. Uh, and one of my big objectives with Code.org is to actually uh, incorporate machine learning through all our curriculum, uh, not just for students to learn how neural networks work, but more, more importantly to learn how the training data that goes into machine learning is going to impact you know, the quality of algorithms. People talk about algorithmic bias, but it's really the, the data bias and understanding what that means is going to be important for, for people, not just computer scientists, but for, for anybody who's civically engaged to recognize that the way the algorithms that are going to guide our lives and our societies and our governments are, are going to have bias or lack of bias, depending on how well we, we train them. And, and understanding that to me seems it's going to be a fundamental part of being a citizen the next, in the next generation of society. Super. I think uh, machine learning, somewhat expected. Freights and trucking and things like that, a little more unexpected. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. This is already the end of our first episode. Thanks a lot for listening. Please give us your feedback by Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Aurélie, Chloé, Hadi, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here at Station F for this first episode of our podcast. 
uh, which I really hope everybody enjoyed listening to. Also, don't miss out on our next events here at Station F. We have an upcoming Ask Me Anything session with Thomas, the founder of Miro. Uh, obviously, everyone now knows Miro recently raised a 250 million euro round to become the latest French unicorn. Make sure you follow us and don't miss out on our next episodes. We're available on all of your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and TuneIn. See you all on Friday.